0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This morning I'd like to start with a story that comes from the life of Jesus. And uh, so many of the stories from the life of Jesus in the Gospels are really hard to believe, really hard to understand as we look at it from the contemporary worldview and yet, every story of Jesus in the Gospels is true. And all the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels is true. So the story that I have to, sh- to share with you comes from Luke chapter 7. And Jesus, is, has, it's early in His ministry, and He has been walking around and teaching, and He's been performing miracles that just are blowing people away. And as He is walking into a town called Nain, N-A-I-N, he has got a whole bunch of his followers and other stragglers with him. And as he's walking into this city, there is coming out of the city. At the very gates, these two multitudes meet up. There's a funeral procession coming out. And it's, 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 it's a mob of people because the man that had died was a young man. He was the only son of a widow and this, this, little, this town, probably half of the town, knew that family and were so struck with grief for her. And they were walking out with her. And these two mobs meet up at the town gates, at the city gates. And it says in the Bible that Jesus saw the widow and he had compassion on her. And he walks up to the pallbearers, they're on they're on i got a little picture here that could help you he walks up to the pallbearers and and he says to the man that's dead young man arise and immediately the man sits up <laughs> and starts talking and everybody is seized it says seized with fear what's going on And they lower the man, they they put him down, and Jesus gives him back to his mother. And then the last word of the story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, is that the people said, God has visited us here. God has visited us here. The thing that I I find amazing about the ministry of Jesus is that what he is doing and what he is demonstrating is that he is reversing everything that sin's curse had brought to bear upon humanity. He's reversing it. Jesus' ministry is the grand reversal. And that's why we long for his second coming, because things are not as they should be on planet earth. In fact, right after this scripture, the very next scripture, John the Baptist, who is this forerunner to Jesus, his disciples were sent, messengers, from John the Baptist to go and ask Jesus, are you the one, are you the one that we have been expecting, or should we wait for someone else? And what does Jesus do? He performs some more miracles. He says, well, come with me for a while, watch what I'm doing. And then then he says this to the messengers from John the Baptist. He says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. The grand reversal is taking place in the ministry of Jesus An author by the name of John Mahoney said this, the biblical story arises out of three historical events. So if you want to just sum up the Bible in three events, he says the creation of the universe, the intrusion of sin, and the redemption accomplished by Christ. It is a drama in three parts, the happy beginning, the tragic rebellion, and the spectacular finish. You see, we live in this era of the already but not yet, this spectacular finish. It's already begun with the first advent of Jesus Christ, and we're in between it now. It's not as it should be, but when He returns, He's going to restore it. He's going to reverse completely the curse of sin. So, so, so the Bible's view of why there is mental illness, of why there is disease and cancer, of why people die whether it's at 20 or 80. Uh, the The Bible's answer to these questions is because of sin, sin which brought the curse which which created in humanity a nature which is given over to mortality instead of immortality and subject to all the ills of evil that came with sin. Not personal sin necessarily, not little s sin, but big s sin. Sin that has brought the curse upon humanity. That's the Bible's explanation. And so Jesus has come to reverse that. We see about this in the tree of life that's found in the garden. Actually, I should say, R.C. Sproul said, We are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. It's a nature. And in the, in the Garden of Eden, it, it, we see this eternal life being offered to, to humans right from the beginning. There were two trees in the center of the garden. There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were, were tempted by Satan to think that maybe God was holding out on them some kind of a life that, that they could have had in their own independence, so they, they were succumbed. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, they ate the forbidden fruit. They, their eyes were opened. They lost their innocence. And yet we read in the Scripture that this tree of life is going to reappear at the end of the time. That's why in Revelation chapter 22 we see the tree of life. Because you see, there is a way back into the garden. Adam and Eve were not allowed to stay in the garden. Not purely judgment, but mercy. Because what a terrible thing it would be to be immortal, yet subject constantly to all of sin. God said, no, my plan is not for sinners to live with me eternally. My plan is that I will give them my life and let them live with me eternally apart from sin. And so God cast our forefathers out of that garden for mercy's sake, and then he provided a way back into the garden through Jesus Christ. He made a plan. And so... It's not through the first Adam that we're allowed back in, it's through the second Adam. The New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. And through, through faith in Him, our sins can be wiped away and we can be offered eternal life. Now, in the book of Genesis, there are a lot of firsts. The book of Genesis is about a lot of firsts. This morning, we're going to look at a few of them. Some of them are we're not going to look at like it's the first time that music appears, it's the first time that cities are built, but we're going to look at three first. One is the first conception of a human being, and the second is the first offering made to God, and the third is the first taking of a human life. So if you have a Bible or would like to look at it with me, would you turn to Genesis chapter 4, and um, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If you're able to and listen to the Word of God as I read it, Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore her brother Abel, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought a firstborn of his flock and the fat portions thereof. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, and so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, "'Where is Abel, your brother?' And he said, "'I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper?' And the Lord said, have, "'What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength.' You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on this earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have given me today, driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on this earth, and whoever finds me is going to kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone found who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. May God bless his word to us. You may be seated. This morning I would like to examine two things, the historical significance and then the theological significance. You can see that in your insert in your bulletin. And the first thing I want to do is talk about the content purely of this scripture and the three firsts that it accounts for. <clears throat> there are many questions that I have about Genesis. I don't know about you, but as we've been studying Genesis, there are so many questions that I have that I don't have answers for. One of the questions that I've been studying this past week. And again, we should we should make sure that like John Walton says, John Walton says, you know, we should learn to read the lines of scripture not between the lines. <laughs> And, and that's good advice, but I got, I got carried away studying, thinking, how long did Adam and Eve live in the garden before they sinned and were cast out? I just, I got, I got a hold of that and I couldn't leave it alone, so I started reading about it. Most people, it's pure speculation, but most people think days, possibly weeks. I think, I think that's reasonable to think that the enemy, Satan, would not have wasted any time to bring them into temptation... And it's very interesting that given this incredible paradise and being found naked and having no shame, it's surprising that they didn't have a child in that condition. Because we do know that in chapter 4, verse 1, their first child is conceived. Not just born, conceived. And that's what it says that's the first, that I wanna, the first first that I want to remind you of is this, this first giving of a human life. see, Adam and Eve were formed as adults. This is the first conception and the first birth of a human being. His name is Cain, their firstborn son. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, that, that Adam knew his wife. That's, that's a word in the Old Testament Hebrew for having sexual intercourse. He knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son named Cain and the word Cain is a hebrew play on the word gotten she says i have gotten a man with the help of the lord the interesting thing is as i studied this there is a possible translation that's not quite so clear it could be that it could be translated i have created a man equally to the lord now that brings a very different meaning upon this statement of Eve. If indeed is that is what she, she's saying, she is boasting before God. She is saying, just like God created a man, I've brought forth a man. That could be the meaning in her attitude. And in fact, if we go further into the chapter, after that man that she bore kills his brother Abel, Notice in verse 2, for example, the subject of the sentence is Eve. I have gotten a man. and God's secondary with the help of the Lord. But notice at the end of the chapter in verse 25, when their third son is born, his name is Seth, which means in Hebrew appointed, notice that the, the, the switch has taken place. Eve is not the center of the sentence now. God is the center. And now Eve is Secondary. In chapter 4, verse 25, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed Abel. Now God is the subject, not Eve. And notice that in verse 26, when when the whole chapter is summarized, the writer says, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So I think that there's a good possibility that that Eve was somehow usurping God, boasting of the fact that she brought forth a man. Because in Genesis 3, we saw the root of sin, but in chapter 4, we start to see the fruit of sin, which is this independence from God, which is this pride that exalts itself above God and thinks that we can run our own lives. Self-centeredness. Sin causes us to put ourselves ahead of God. We we think that we deserve what we do. We we get the credit for what we do and so on. In verse 2, we read that Eve gives birth to another child, Abel. It's interesting that the name Abel means breath. And it's ironical that the the man, the, the child that is born and named breath should be the first one whose breath is taken away from him. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out about the first verse. Another first that I wanted to point out is that it's the first offering made to God that's recorded in Scripture. And in verses 3 to 7 you see it. You see, for a long time I, I believed that Cain's offering was not acceptable to God because it was not a blood sacrifice. I thought that, that, that that's what God required. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that when we look at the law of Moses, you know, much later that was written, there were both fruit and vegetable sacrifices and animal sacrifices given for different reasons. And I think that because Cain was a farmer and because Abel was a shepherd, that God would have accepted from their hand both of them their first fruits or their firstborn. But if you notice in Scripture in verse 3, When Cain gives the offering, it does not say that he gave his first fruits. It just says he gave an offering. But you'll notice that when Abel gives his offering, it says he gave his firstborn. I don't think that's a a, a slight on the part of the writer. I think that's intentional recording of history. And so, even more fundamental to that, though, I think, is the fact that In the heart attitude of Cain was not a worshiper of God that was in Abel. We read about it here that perhaps Cain gave an offering that reflected his heart. Not giving his best, his first to God, but giving his leftovers. An attitude that did not reveal the heart of a worshiper. Notice that in verse 6, the Lord says to him, And I like the way the NIV reads, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? The the Hebrew words, by the way, could be translated, why are you furious and why are you scowling? That's that's kind of the essence of it. And then he goes on to say, God warns Cain, if you do what is right, will will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, you must master it. God warns Cain about his offering and about his attitude. And he ignores that warning. Verse 8, he rises up, invites his brother to go with him out to the field while they're out there. He kills his brother. Premeditated murder. Verse 8. Pure jealousy, pure anger. It leads to our third first that I'm pointing out this morning the first taking of a human life. It's interesting because in the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we have a commentary to interpret this event. In 1 John 3, verse 12, John writes, Why did Cain murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. This was an act of jealousy, an act of anger. And so God confronts him, as we've read, God confronts him. He says, where's your brother? He lies, he says, I don't know. And then he sarcastically responds, am I my brother's keeper? There's attitude all over this text. Not the attitude of a worshiper, the attitude of a self-defensive, proudful person. And then God continues and presses further and he says, Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. These are the most sober words of the whole chapter. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Here we have the final word on every murder trial. Here we have the final word on every person falsely accused of murder and put behind bars. Here we have the final word of every murderer that has walked free. Here we have the final word, and the final word is, God sees all, God hears all, God knows all, and one day a day of reckoning will come and God will tell all. Everything that's done in secret. And the blood of every human life, the blood of every human life that has been taken cries out to God right now. Every human life's blood taken away is crying out to God right now. Whether it is from the ground or from the womb, whether it is from the gas chambers of the Holocaust or from the muddy waters of the Red River, every human blood cries out to God. What does it cry? injustice, vengeance. For God is the only one that decides to give and take away life. For life is precious. That's why we took seven weeks, folks, to talk about the imago Dei, the image of God. Because the very Christian worldview is built upon, the idea of sanctity of human life is built upon a Christian worldview that sanctifies God, sets him apart, and recognizes the distinctiveness of human beings created in his image. Fallen and broken, but still image bearers nonetheless. Now, you know, it's not often that we put stuff on our church webpage that's political. But this past week, some of you might notice that we did this past week. Because it was in response to a public consultation that the federal government has launched concerning euthanasia and medical assistance in dying. And you Canadians, all of us Canadians, we have until tomorrow to fill out a questionnaire. I've already done mine. You have until tomorrow to fill out a questionnaire and answer. The the Canadian government is asking our opinion. Don't like the way some of the questions are worded, but nonetheless, you get to answer the question. You see, back in June of 2016, The law in Canada has allowed for anyone whose death was reasonably foreseeable to end their life through a lethal injection offered to them by the assistance of a doctor. Now there is a push, before this law is even reviewed at its five-year mark, now there is a push to amend this law in our country so that the, the doors of access to assisted dying would be even more open. You can read about this on our web page. You can see there also an, an interview by Alex Schadenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. You see, as a church, as a church we believe in the sanctity of human life. And we believe it is built upon what God has called us to in the Scriptures. And so here, as we read the first taking of, the human, of a human life, we cannot just sort of think, well, that was back then. We've got to apply this today. We've got to ask if we're doing all we can to respect and to preserve human life. And so imagine, in this one act that we read of in chapter 4, in this one act, Adam and Eve lost their two sons, one to death and one to estrangement. And they are cast out of the garden, And Cain is left to be a fugitive and a wanderer. And you know, he ends up, it says in the Scripture in verse 16, that he ends up in this town called Nod. Well, the word Nod means wanderer in in Hebrew. Sin is a terrible, terrible evil. And the only solution is to confess it. Sin is the kind of thing that will... We'll always win in the end unless we own it, confess it, deal with it, take responsibility for it, for the wrongdoings. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Problem of Pain. He said, Adam and Eve wanted some corner in the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours, but there is no such corner. See, that's what what sin in its its core is all about. It's saying, God, leave me alone. I don't want you. I want to be my sovereign. I want to run my life. I want this corner. Don't you touch it. I'll give you the rest of this, but don't touch this area. That's That's not the arrangement we can make with God. An even more severe kind of statement is made by Millard Erickson. He writes this. He says, sin is man saying to God throughout life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God finally saying to man, you may have your wish. It is God leaving man to himself as man has chosen. Friends, this is heavy. This is heavy. These These are some of the most unpopular doctrines to be talking about in the Word of God. But if we do not talk about what the Bible talks about, whose are we? Heavy, heavy subject. And yet, we don't need to sit under the heaviness of sin. We don't need to sit under all of the judgment of sin. There's a way back into the garden. There's a way back into fellowship with God. It's provided for through Jesus Christ, the Lord God. And so let's move on to talk now about the intent of this passage and the theological significance. I'd like to share three lessons with us as I mentioned earlier, Genesis was written not to us but to the people of Israel at the time of the wilderness wanderings when they were at Mount Sinai and receiving the law. And so we must understand what is it that the author intended the first listeners of, of Genesis to understand. And when I understand that, I push further, I think that what, what Moses is really wanting God's people to understand in this passage in Genesis, is what is an acceptable offering to God? How do we really offer to God what is acceptable? And I love the way this author, John Salheimer, writes. He says the author's purpose is apparently to use the narrative of Cain and Abel to teach a lesson on the kind of worship that is pleasing to God. What worship that pleases God is that which springs from a pure heart. How does the narrative teach this? By allowing the reader to see behind the scenes the response of Cain, rather than attempting to discover what was wrong with Cain's offering, we would be better advised to note what was wrong with his heart. And so, let's take a look at three quick lessons about what it means to, to worship God sincerely. First, I want to say that we must learn to offer God our first fruits, not just our leftovers. We see this in the offering that Cain gave. We see an attitude behind Cain that that is not a worshiper. So easy to to put God in a box and to to want to have our box left alone by God, compartmentalized in that way. We can't do that with God. And so it's a lifestyle question, isn't it? Do Do we make our plans and then we invite God into some of them later on? <clears throat> do we give God the leftovers of our time? Or do we look at our calendar and say, God, we're going we're to make sure that we're serving you in these relationships, in that ministry, in this service? Do we look at our bank account and say at the end of the month, well, there might be a little left for, for God in offering, in, in ministry, in serving? Or do we say to God, no God, I want you to have the first fruits. I'm going to give you the firstborn, not the leftovers. This is a lifestyle question when we think about how we live. What does God require? This is how we apply this scripture to our lives today. And then secondly, we we must learn to offer God our hearts, not just our offerings. We can't think that somehow God is happier with a a check than a life. God cannot be paid off. As, as Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. That is what God wants is our lives. Think about it. Who would you rather, what would you rather happen on your birthday, on your special birthday? Would you rather have your kids and your loved ones or your parents or your brothers and sisters, or would you rather that that's, they just send a gift and a little card saying, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm not there. Or would you rather have them there? <laughs> would you rather have their presence? That's what God wants. God, God doesn't want the things we can give Him if it doesn't, isn't accompanied by our very lives, wanting to be with Him in fellowship and walk with Him, serve Him, be on His page, on His agenda, not just saying, God, I'll give you the leftovers. And then thirdly, <clears throat> I think that this scripture teaches us through Cain that we will be spiritual wanderers far from God unless we take responsibility for our sin. I say this to those who have already become followers of Jesus and those who have not become followers of Jesus. The same lesson applies. We can be spiritual wanderers if we don't take responsibility. For our sin. Cain is an example of a person who allowed sin to get a foothold, who does not heed the warnings that were given to him, who is insolent after he is caught in sin. We see examples of this in the news all the time, don't we? Persons that are proven to be guilty of a crime, denying it, not owning up, playing the victim. Don't harden yourself. The hardening effects of sin are hard to reverse. Jesus Christ alone can reverse the effects of sin. It seems like God likes asking questions of his children who are wayward. Have you noticed that? In chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed God, what does God say to them? He asks them a question. He says, where are you? It wasn't a GPS question. It was saying, why are you gone into hiding? You and I are friends. You know? And in chapter 4 as well, when Cain sins against his brother and against God, God says, where's your brother? Two very important questions. (laughs) Two questions that God asks us. Where are you in relation to him? Why don't you come out of hiding? Where's your brother in relation to you? His purpose is to expose sin, to deal with it, to restore the broken relationships. You know, at the end of chapter four, the first human family is in in a terrible place, isn't it? It's a shattered family. Abel's corpse is, is rotting in the ground. Cain is driven far from his family, physically and emotionally. Adam and Eve are left with a broken family to pick up the pieces, broken with grief. I ask you this morning, where are you this morning? We're all broken. We all come from broken families, more some than others, but we're all broken. We feel the brokenness. Sometimes we think our hope is broken too because we haven't understood what the Bible is teaching. This morning, as we conclude our service, I want to offer you hope that is found in Christ, hope that is found in some scripture that I want to share with you, and hope that can be found in prayer, in asking God to come down and meet you in your broken family, in your broken life. There's an incredible scripture. Here's it says that that the voice of of Abel's blood is crying out. You know, there's not one recorded word from Abel in all the Bible, and yet his blood is crying out. And there's a verse in the scriptures from Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 24 it says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, that's where the hope comes from. There's a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel, what does it cry out? It cries out condemnation upon every sinner, vengeance, retribution. That's what we all would have to look forward to. But the blood of Christ speaks a better word. What is that word? It's healing. It's restoration. It's forgiveness. And so this morning, I want to ask you, if you would stand with me and with us this morning, and uh, I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been doing with your heart in, in this message, but I want to give you hope today. I want to offer you a chance to call out to God, and I want to pray for you. And would you do this? Uh, would you do this for me in, in this in this moment as an act of offering? to God, would you put your palms out and would you hold them upward before the Lord and in your palms you're making your offering maybe what you're offering is a broken life an area of your life that you know has been hindered by sin maybe it's your family that you're holding as an offering before the Lord and you're saying Lord speak a better word into my family than the blood of Abel Maybe it's just the world that you live in and you're burdened for something around you. That you hold your hands there. Let me pray for our offering before God. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning. And Lord, we are broken people. And we need, we need you, Jesus. You're the only hope. We believe that from the beginning until the end, the word of God, your Bible, teaches us that it's all pointing to you, Jesus. And that your blood that was shed on the cross does speak a better word. It's a word of hope today. Lord, I pray for every offering that is held in the in the hands of each person today. The, the offering of a broken life. The offering of a broken area. A secret sin. The offering of a marriage that is in shambles. An offering that is of a family life that cannot function. Oh, God, an offering of just looking at humanity and society in Winnipeg and just saying, God, help us. Father, we're offering to you our prayer today. Would you come down? Would you help us heal our broken land? You said that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray, you will hear from heaven and you will heal our land. Oh, God, come. We ask you in Jesus' name.